0: We're going to be returning to the book of Revelation today and we'll be returning to chapter 22. I I hope to get through the rest of the chapter today, starting at verse 6, so I will read verse 6 through the end of the chapter. Revelation 22, verse 6. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the doers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done." I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Once again, as an introduction, a brief introduction here, I approach the book of Revelation as this. First of all, it's a letter. It's a letter written to churches, written to real people in the first century with real application to these people in these churches in the first century. The, the things that Jesus says to these seven churches in the, in the seven letters of chapters 2 and 3, those just did not go away at the end of the first century. What is stated there, both positive and negative, still applies to God's people today. Now, secondly, then, this book is prophetic. It's going to tell what's going to happen in the future after John writes this down. It also, says about, it also talks about things that have happened in the past, but it is prophetic. It does talk about that which is future. It speaks truth about which is to come. And not only about truth which is to come, but it also addresses, again, the present realities that people like you and I, if we would have lived in the first century, have to deal with in their lives as Christians. But there is a prophetic element to this book, so we don't want to deny that either. And lastly, it's written in a form which is apocalyptic. It uses imagery. It uses symbols to convey reality. Are the images sometimes vivid? Are they wild? They look crazy at times. Yes, they do. But it uses images to convey truth, just like we would see in places elsewhere, like we'd see in Daniel, or we'd see in Zechariah, or we'd see in Ezekiel. If we did a study through this book, we would see just how much Scripture is referred to, whether by direct reference or allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, throughout this book. This book, this letter, this prophecy is heavily Old Testament dependent. One of the reasons we don't understand the book of Revelation is because we don't understand our Old Testaments well enough. But this book is, is apocalyptic, yes. So we have to try and, and get what the images are meant to convey. So let's get to the passage for today. And I want to look at three points in this passage today. Clearly, 16 verses, it's hard to preach through 16 verses in 50 minutes, but I'm going to try. My three points are Jesus is coming. Now, that may seem elemental <laughs> and basic, but He is. And He's not just coming, He says multiple times to us in this, in this chapter, in this passage, He is not merely coming, He is coming soon. And if He says He's coming soon, He's coming soon. So we're going to look at that. Second, blessing, second point is about blessings. This letter is written to bless God's people. This is here to bless us, not just people of the first century. And thirdly, there are warnings in this passage as well. And there are not just warnings for the lost here. There are warnings for people who sit in assemblies like this regularly. There are warnings for the lost, but there are warnings in this passage for people who sit in gatherings like this, who profess to know Christ. We know it's not too late for people to come to Christ as long as they have a pulse here in this, in this passage, it's not too late for people to come to Christ. It's not too late for the people, for instance, in those five churches in chapters 2 and 3 that Jesus is rebuking uh, pretty strongly in those chapters. It's not too late for them to get their spiritual act together. It's not too late for us to get our act together. It's not too late, as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, for them to get their act together either. And if you get your spiritual act together or you have it together, what does the passage say? What does this book say in those seven letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3? Jesus says there are blessings described for the one who conquers. Every church gets one of those statements. To the one who conquers. He says it seven times. But there's going to be a time when that's going to stop. When He says... I am coming soon, when that's a reality, then all the second chances are over. It's done. But until then, salvation is freely offered to Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, liar and hypocrite, blasphemer and the self-righteous. But only until He comes back. So let's look at our first point. He is coming. And He is coming soon. He says so Himself three times. Verses 7, 12, and 20. The angel who's been proclaiming this truth to John also says that very thing in verse 10 when he says the time is near. People can look at this and go, but it's been 2,000 years since Jesus says this. Are they right? Yes, they're right. Don't deny that, it's been 2,000 years. Does that mean Scripture is wrong? No, it doesn't. How can I say that? When God speaks, and God speaks in every word in this book, every word in your Bible is breathed out by God. Every word in this book is therefore true. And every word that God has breathed out in this book being therefore true, is defined as truth by God, not by men. When the Spirit carried along men to write this down, they wrote down what was true. You see in verse 6, the angel says to John, these words are trustworthy and true. They are. So we have to accept them as true because they're coming from God. We don't get to judge whether or not Scripture is true or not. Scripture is true just because it's Scripture, not because we agree with it being true. But God defines what soon is, and you know this even in your real life. You tell your daughter, Dad, can we get ice cream? Yeah, we'll go get ice cream soon. Now you know... (laughs) you know that if you don't have the van loaded up in five minutes, you haven't met her standard of soon. Okay? That's, that's the way it is. But she doesn't get to define what soon is. Dad does. Does the daughter like that? Dad, how come it's taking so long? We'll get there soon. So we, we get the concept of, of soon, because no matter what you do, if she doesn't have an ice cream cone in her hand, it's not soon enough. You know that. Same thing here. Didn't Peter address this issue of soon and how God defines it in 2 Peter? With the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Second Peter 3. And he also addresses that issue of soon elsewhere in 2 Peter 3. Because what he does in 2 Peter 3 is he talks about things that they should already know. He says, I'm reminding you of what you already know. He's reminding them of the predictions, as Scripture says, of the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord, and of the Savior through the apostles. And Peter writes that w- who are, who are going to come in the last days? Scoffers. People who don't believe what you're saying. Are we in the last days? Absolutely. How long have we been in the last days? 2,000 years. Scoffers came then. Peter knew it. Scoffers come today. We know it. God forbid any of God's people be scoffers about Jesus coming soon. How many people, how many people do you think that when this actually happens, when Jesus does come back, they're going to say, wait, wait, I'm not ready. I got stuff I want to do. Or, oh, okay, yeah, I guess you guys were right about all that stuff you said. Do I get another chance? No, you don't. Because when He comes, it's over. It's not He comes and you can still. know. When He comes, it's over. And He's coming soon. By His definition of soon. Second Peter 3 also says this. It says the day when that all goes down is going to come like a thief. It's important to remember the day is going to come like a thief. The day is going to come, and it's just going to happen. It's going to be, you're living your life. Boom, it's going to happen. And, and I know people will say, well, this sign hasn't been fulfilled, and that sign hasn't been fulfilled. Be careful about our level of omniscience in, in determining what the signs are. Be very careful there. <laughs> because when He comes, the actual coming is not going to be quiet. You get that sense reading your Bible. Second Peter says, what's going to happen? The heavens are going to pass away with a roar. That's the ESV's version. King James and the New King James say, a great noise. In 1536, William Tyndale's translation, Tyndale said, a terrible noise. And you know that 1 Thessalonians 4 says, what's going to happen when He comes to gather His people? Three things. Voice of an archangel cry of command and the sound of the trumpet that's not going to be quiet but that's all going to come like a thief that it's not going to be announced ahead of time you're not going to have your phone pop up with your two-hour reminder saying this coming in two hours it's going to just happen and don't you get the sense that Scripture wants us to live, and these people in Scripture lived with the expectation of they're ready for it to happen right now whenever right now is. Because Jesus is coming soon. There's not going to be anything silent about that. But it is going to come the day, the event is going to come like a thief. Silently. Not with any... Not with any you know, not with, any, not with that reminder on your phone. It's going to happen. The question for us is, are we ready? Are we anticipating it the way that I believe Scripture wants us to anticipate it? It's a good thing. If you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're praying that Thy kingdom come. When is His kingdom going to come? His kingdom's going to come in its fullness on that day when the cry of command, the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet come, when the heavens pass away with a roar. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying that that happen. And when we pray it, I don't think we're praying, Lord, defer that another 2,000 years. We pray because we want that to happen now. And we know that when we pray that, though, the blessings that I'm going to describe in, in the next point here are going, to, are going to come, but at the same time, when we see the blessings described in their fullness being manifest, what does that also mean? That means that judgment is also manifest. Our Lord keeps His promises. The promises of blessing are just as true as the promise of curse. Curse. The promises of reward are just as true as the promises of damnation. And it's going to happen. And it's coming. To use Jesus' own words, soon. So, what else do we see about Him coming soon? I keep going back to Second Peter because Second Peter does speak to this quite a bit. No. Could Jesus come back before I finish my sermon? Yeah. Would that be a bad thing? <laughs> no, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> because in the age to come, you're not going to be you're not going to be concerned about what I didn't get to today. If He comes back here at ten twenty-five today, <laughs> because we're going to see Jesus. <laughs> But when when Peter's talking about this day, when Peter's talking about this day, when the heavens pass away with a roar, what does Peter do right in the midst of all of this stuff about eschatology, about the end times, about, about this happening? Peter goes to holiness. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening, hastening the day of God? I think I mentioned this before. You ever think that somehow our holiness has something to do with the, the speed with which the day comes? It's, it's probably more a matter of our holiness affects our perception of how quickly the day comes because the day's fixed. The day's fixed. But Peter goes to holiness. If, if you were doing a Bible study on the end times and eschatology, would you throw right in the middle of it teaching on holiness? ha. <laughs> Peter does. Right in the middle of it. Would we talk about heaven's being dissolved with a roar, they're melting as they burn, and in the midst of that, go right to holiness. Peter does. And Peter does because the Spirit carried him along to write down the breathed-out words of God. This is not just Peter. This is God telling us it matters how we live as we wait the coming of Christ. Peter says, as we're waiting for this and teaches us, he says, we're supposed to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. That's in the middle of this teaching on on Jesus coming back. When we're thinking about Jesus coming back soon, we ought to also be thinking about our lives. How are we living? Are Are we taking the grace of God for granted? Are we just thinking God is kind and God is forgiving and He understands and, and, and He'll be okay with what I'm doing because God is forgiving? You don't get the sense of that from Scripture. You don't want to abuse the grace of God or as Paul told the Corinthians, you don't want to take the grace of God in vain. Okay, Shouldn't we be thinking about, about our ongoing effort to be what we've already been declared to be? Have we already been declared to be without spot or blemish, to be a pure spotless bride? Yes, we have been declared that, but we are not yet that inherently ourselves. But what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to strive for that holiness without which no man shall see the Lord as we're thinking about Jesus coming back. Now, I am not preaching sinless perfectionism, but I am preaching that our lives do matter. I am going to preach that what we do and what we don't do, as Scripture tells us, what we are to do and not to do in this age matters. We have to be careful that we don't get sloppy. We have to be careful that we don't get careless. We have to be careful that we're not being watchful. Could, could our knees become weak and our feet slide? Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angered God, is based upon one little phrase from Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-five: Their foot shall slide in due time. Brethren, we've got to keep our feet on the path. I know that we can only do it by grace. Yes, it is God who works in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. But we're supposed to do that working out our salvation with fear and trembling at the same time. Keep our feet on the paths that... That after forty years in the Christian life, you look back in the rearview mirror of the forty years, and you see so many people who slipped, who drifted, who wandered, like that person who gets in, get, gets in the, <laughs> gets in the little floaty thing, and and goes down to you're down at Corpus, you're in the Gulf, and you're you're hundred feet offshore, and you're sitting there floating in the sun, and then you take a nap, and you wake up, and you're a quarter of a mile offshore. That happens so often in the Christian life. And, and the thing is, is that person who has that happen to them, they don't realize it until they're there. But we don't want to go there. That's why being watchful matters. That's why the little things matter. That's why, that's why we need to strive after that holiness. Because if we don't, we can wake up and be a quarter mile offshore one day. And the problem is, a lot of people who wake up a quarter mile offshore are fine with it, and they're quite content to keep on going. But you don't want to go there because that's going to be point number three. But it's so grieving when you see people doing that, brethren. Grab on to Jesus and hang on. (laughs) You hang on by faith. You don't hang on by your works. Your faith will produce your works. That's the message of of James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. You are saved by faith alone, that one time declaration that says, not guilty, and you're declared righteous. You're declared righteous. But we still have that responsibility to be holy in our lives, to show that, yes, indeed, I have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone. And our works show that. That's not salvation by works. That's verification of your salvation by faith is what that is. That's why Peter goes where he goes here. Because he wants people to get to the end. You hear me keep praying over and over and over about getting to the end, about you all getting to the end, about me getting to the end. And I do that because I've seen so many people not get to the end. We don't want to get hyper-Calvinistic about this. God uses means to get His people to the end. God uses prayer. God uses the brethren. God uses His Word. God uses preaching. God uses lots of things to get people to the end. And we want to make sure that we use those means and just don't sit back and say, I'm good because God saved me or she's good because God saved her. Our God uses means to get people to the end, and I don't want anybody here who is saved to not who is professing to be saved to not get to the end and therefore show that they were never saved in the first place. Okay, cuz you want don't you want the blessings that God has for you? That's going to my second point about the blessings here. Revelation starts the same way that it began. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, The person who reads the words of this prophecy, the book of Revelation, aloud, A L O U D, is blessed. And those who hear it are blessed. But that's not the end of verse 3. Because it keeps on going and it says, Blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For what? The time is near. Jesus is coming soon. Now, the blessings are conditional. I've already touched on them, but I'll go back there in point number three. Now, for point number two, I just want to look at the blessings here. We tend to think whenever we ask somebody, define blessed or define what the blessing is. We go to the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And I know a common answer is to be happy. Now, is that necessarily wrong or bad? It's not necessarily wrong or bad, but I just don't think it's quite right. Because there are a lot of people who are happy, who hate Jesus. We use this definition in the ethics study, and I think it's fair. You might take issue with it not being a full definition of being blessed or, or the blessing, but I would say it's a spiritual joy which only comes through faith in Christ. It's a particular joy Not just a generic joy, it's a particular joy. It's a a joy that only comes from God as a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because people count themselves blessed all the time who are as lost as Judas Iscariot was. They got their house, they got their spouse, they got the kids, they got their job, they got their three vehicles, they got their season tickets to the Spurs, they got all this stuff, and they think that they are, they are mightily blessed. Now, in one sense, are they? Yes, because they've only got that because God has been kind to them. The problem is, they're like Herod in Acts chapter 12, they don't thank God for it. And they're lucky, fortunate, they're blessed that God hasn't smitten them dead like He did Herod in Acts chapter 12. But what about our blessing? When we see blessed here, verse 7, blessed is the one. What does that mean? What is our blessing? Our blessing is we have Jesus Christ. And we have Him now in one way, but we're going to have Him in another way when He comes soon. And can you put a face and write down what that blessing is going to look like? You're a better man or a woman than I if you can. But all I know, it's going to be a whole lot better and greater than we can imagine. How, are we, how can we grasp the, infin, the infinity of Jesus Christ, the infinity of the face of the Father, the holiness, the greatness, and because we can't in this age. But Jesus says we're going to be blessed because we're going to have that. You go back earlier in the chapter. We're going to see the face of God. Is that not our true blessing? Now, I know that when I go here, this might be uh, you know, a little... You know, somebody might grit their teeth at this. I'm not going to heaven to see primarily or to what we see here, the new heaven and the new earth. I'm not going there primarily to see anybody except god now are we going to see the saints yes i know people will say and i get it people will say you know i can't wait to get to heaven to see my wife i get it see my husband i get it but you know that's gravy what makes heaven heaven is not the saints it's that jesus is there that's what makes the new heaven and the new earth great. It's that Jesus is there in a way that He is not here now. Yeah, you know, is, is it going to be great to, to be in the... You know, You think, think about your biblical characters. You know, Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yes, a Protestant. I just said it. <laughs> uh, you know, all those people in Hebrews chapter 11... You know the guy I would want to have a conversation with? I'd want to have a conversation with the demoniac. When Jesus told you, go back and tell people how, how the Lord had mercy on you and what He had done for you. What did you tell people? What was that like? Now, that's just me. Now, you may have somebody else you want to talk to. You know, you may, you may have a family member. You may have this character or that character or this preacher or that preacher. And and people people say you know are you going to see they say to us you're going to see your son there I don't know I don't know if our son is in is in heaven or not if he's there it's gravy because when we get there we're not going to be people of mourning or crying or pain anymore we're not going to be thinking about our sorrow when you're in the presence of Christ that's going to dominate your life in a way that it doesn't dominate your life now. But when, when all this happens and when all this goes down, that's when the blessings here manifest in their fullness. But it's conditional. That's point number three, and we'll get there in a minute. But he says in this passage, this blessing that we can't fathom, we have the right to the tree of life, we have the right to that which was taken away from man when Adam sinned. What does that look like? I don't know. But we've got it because we've trusted Christ. Because we've got our robes washed, as as the passage says, verse 14. And how are our robes washed? Think about this, you got a dirty garment you know name name your dirt name your greasy thing or your spaghetti sauce or whatever you can't get out of something how would you wash it would you wash it with blood we would look at it as blood would make the garment worse our bible says our spiritual garments are washed by blood and they're made white whiter than you and I can imagine white being Because white here is the absolute absence of darkness. It is the absolute presence of light. It is a light, it is a white that we cannot grasp in this age. But our robes are washed in this blood, it says. And they're washed in the blood of the Lamb according to Scripture. Chapter 7, verse 14. Our robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb But only because we've trusted the Lamb by faith, by faith in Him and His blood. And we get access to that which was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. But we only get it by the blood of the Lamb because He is worthy, as we know from the song in Revelation chapter 5. All right, third point. Blessed are those who hear and keep what's in this prophecy. John had this angel tell him that what he was to write down were true and trustworthy words, not just here. Also says it in chapter five, verse in verse five of chapter twenty one. But this prophecy, the fullness of the, the book of Revelation, it begins and it ends with the condition upon the blessing. Keeping the words of the prophecy. That warning here is not just for the lost. There are some things in these last two chapters which are scary. You go back, look at chapter 21, verse 7. I'll give you an example. We know Jesus spoke to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. He told every one of those churches, even the two that were doing well, That there were blessings to be had as long as they conquered. Conquered what? Well, clearly conquering sin. By faith in the one who has conquered sin, ultimately. And by having our works, therefore, show that we have trusted Christ to conquer sin on our behalf. Again, that's nothing more than a manifestation of James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. But we know everybody's going to have to give an account. Everybody. Paul says, we, when he says that to the Corinthians. He doesn't say, you all have to give an account. He says, we. He includes himself there. He includes himself in that in that plural. Whether good or evil. We know that the, the end of Ecclesiastes tells us that. Everybody's going to have to give an account for what they've done, whether good or evil. But look at chapter 21, verse 7. Now, that's related to what Paul's going I mean what John's going to say over in chapter 22 verse 15 but chapter 7 chapter 21 verse 7 the one who conquers again remember he is Jesus has said that to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 the one who conquers will have this heritage what heritage clearly what comes before this what happened in the first 6 verses The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But, contrast, these people get this. However, there's another side to this. What's the other side? But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I believe that what he talks about when he talks about the cowardly, the faithless, and the detestable are the people who did not conquer. Because there was persecution going on, there were hard times. He says in verse 7 the one who conquers. Verse 8 talks about people who did not conquer, who professed faith in Christ. And they showed themselves to be cowardly because they ran in fear away from whatever was going on. What about the faithless, the people who stopped believing? The detestable, I believe, is talking about people, again, who walked away, who said, nope, I don't want this anymore. That's why I keep praying we get to the end. That's why I keep praying I get to the end. I don't want to be a coward. I don't want to be faithless. I don't want to be detestable. None of us ought to want that. And maybe nobody in this room is there right now. But if you are, I implore you, don't go there. God's promises apply to judgment just as much as they do to salvation. And when Jesus comes back soon and it's all over, You can't say, I knew what I should do. Well, you can say it, but you can't do anything about it. Anybody who sits in rooms like this in regular gatherings of the church, if, if they are the sexually immoral people, the murderers, the detestable, the idolaters, the liars of this passage, if you know in your heart of hearts, as they say, that that is you today, turn away from that. Don't mess with this God. Don't test God. Jesus said that to the devil, right? Don't mess with this God. You know, the, 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 the sexually immoral, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go there with porn. we got people who meet here who call this their church home who got hooked on porn when they were less than 10 years old. It's not too early to talk about it. You know people in your lives, maybe even you, sexual immorality, lying. You're putting on a facade for somebody. You're cheating at work. You're lying to your boss all the time. You cheat on bids. You're running around on your spouse and your spouse doesn't know it, and you think every you, you can pretend everything's okay. It's not. God's security cameras see everything. And they not only see that which you do, they see what you think. Psalm ninety talks about God knowing our secret sins. Well, there's a little bit of a, you know, there's somewhat of a of an issue there because nothing is secret to Him. We think they're secret, and they might be secret to other people, but to the omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, Almighty God, there is no such thing as a secret sin. And you don't want your sin dealt with on the last day. You want your sin dealt with now, even as hard as it may be to deal with it. Because it might cost you something now to deal with it, whatever it is. Could it cost you your job? Yes. Could it cost you your relationship with friends? Yes. Could it cost you your marriage? Yes. But you don't want to have it dealt with on the last day and you bear the burden of the punishment for that for all eternity. You want to deal with it now. You don't want to wait. You don't want to be the people here. What struck me here in this verse, in verse 8 and in verse 15 of chapter 22, is the word liar in verse 8. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Because a lot of these sins at the end of the day involve lying and practicing falsehood. Even if they're not just telling something which is untrue. Living a life outwardly presenting ourselves to other people, which does not reflect our real life, that which goes on what we think are behind closed doors, that's lying and practicing falsehood. Don't mess with this God on the last day because you don't know when the last day is. It's been 20 minutes since I said that last time. Could it come at 1045? And you haven't dealt with it yet. If you haven't dealt with it, it's going to be too late. So I just say, e- eternity is not worth trying to live on the precipice of God's grace when you want, you want to be married to Christ and you also want to be married to your sin. Christ is no polygamist. He doesn't tolerate that because He's died for those sins which you want to keep engaging in if you want to keep engaging them. But if you're going to keep engaging in them, you're showing that you don't really believe He died for your sins at all because you still want it. Brethren, don't don't go there. You can say, well, the day of the Lord may not happen. Yeah, you know what? You might drop dead from a heart attack at 1046. You don't know. This is not something to mess around with. You don't want to join the devil in the lake of fire. We don't want to. We don't want to. We don't want to push, 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 push to the edge, thinking that God's not going to see and God's not going to know. He knows. He sees, and he knew it and saw it before you even did it or thought it. But there's remedy for it in the passage, verse seventeen. Come. Come and take the water of life without price. Drink the living water today. Yeah, you can't change what you did yesterday, but you can change what you do going forward. And we, we, we need to keep coming to Him. We need to keep drinking. We need to drink that living water every day. We need, to, we need to taste and see that He's good every day. If we don't, that's when our knees become weak and we might start slipping. And, and I mean woe to that, to that person who thinks that they can live right over here on the edge and still get in. People who think they can dance with the devil. I'll tell you what, the devil leads. This is not an equal partnership. You dance with the devil, you're following. The devil leads that dance. You want to walk away from that dance. You want to do like David, dance about the things of the Lord. Okay, this is, this is the end of our Bibles. Now, yes, there's a warning here about adding to or taking away from this book of the prophecy. Don't do it. But this this entire this entire book this was written to help people where they are right now. This book was not written to create more mystery. This book was to encourage people. This book is here because it is clear from beginning to end God won. Yeah. Jesus Christ has has achieved the victory for us. It's done. It's not like the battle is still going on. That battle that He fought is over. We need to live in light of Him having won the battle. And, and, and who is this Christ? Well, the passage says, He says about Himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You can piece together the other places in Revelation where it says that. And you know that the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, is God. Those will show the deity of Christ because He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's so much more about Him that we can't say in this message. Now, I wrestled with whether or not I should do this or not. There's a song that came out in 1994. That describes what the songwriter says are the attributes of Christ or what he has done or allusions to him. It's called He Is by Aaron Jeffrey. Now, Grace Group knows about this from a couple of years ago. About 15 years ago, I memorized that song in order to say it during a message. Now, I'm going to try and do it again. Because if I can say it, you'll get a, get a glimpse of just who Jesus Christ is. It okay, goes through all 66 books of the Bible. And, and I don't want to look down. Okay, It's been a while. I'm old. Bear with me. starts off by saying in Genesis, He's the breath of life. In Exodus, the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, He's our high priest. Numbers, fire by night. Deuteronomy, He's Moses' voice. In Joshua, he is salvation's choice. Judges, lawgiver. In Ruth, the kinsman, redeemer. First and second Samuel, he's our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's sovereign. Ezra, true and faithful scribe. Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. In Esther, he is Mordecai's courage. In Job, the timeless redeemer. In the Psalms, he is our morning song. In Proverbs, wisdom's cry. Ecclesiastes, the time and season. In the Song of Solomon, he is the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Lamentations, the cry for Israel. In Ezekiel, he's the call from sin. In Daniel, the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he is forever faithful. In Joel, he is the spirit's power. In Amos, the arms that carried us. In Obadiah, He is the Lord, our Savior. In Jonah, He's the great missionary. In Micah, the promise of peace. In Nahum, He is our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, He's pleading for revival. In Haggai, He restores the lost heritage. In Zechariah, our fountain. In Malachi, He's the son of righteousness, rising with healing in His wings. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, He is God, man, Messiah. In the book of Acts, he is fire from heaven. In Romans, he is the grace of God. In Corinthians, the power of love. In Galatians, he is freedom from the curse of sin. In Ephesians, our glorious treasure. In Philippians, the servant's heart. In Colossians, he's the Godhead trinity. Thessalonians, our coming king. Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, and he's our mediator and our faithful pastor. In Hebrews, the everlasting covenant. In James, the one who heals the sick. In First and Second Peter, He is our shepherd. In John and in Jude, He's the lover coming for His bride. And in the Revelation, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Prince of Peace, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the great I Am, and He's our King. Amen. To borrow from S.M. Lockridge in the video 10 years ago, that's my King and that's your King. Hallelujah. He's coming soon. Yes, amen. Let's pray. Amen. Father, Father, we wait for, for Your Son to come back. Father, we need help. We need help, though, in the meantime. Father, help us to get to the end by faith. Help us to help each other to get to the end. Father, the, the gloriousness of what is to come, these blessings. Father, we, Your people, ask for help. We need help. Father, we need Your Spirit. Yeah. And we ask in faith, in Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you.